right, well, good morning. I am uh, glad to see you guys. A lot of new faces this morning. Let me be fair. I'll turn my timer on for you. For those of you that are new with us, my name is Robert. Uh, I'm one of your pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I'm the pastor least likely to pay attention to the clock. So I will turn it on and put it in a rather prominent place for you this morning. Um, If you've got your Bibles, um, and I really hope you do, if you could open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 11. We've been taking our time this year walking through the book of Acts written by a physician uh, named Luke, excuse me, to a man named Theophilus, um, who had hired him to write an accurate and worthy account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And let me just encourage you, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, the text will come up on the screen, but we have stacks of Bibles on tables behind this first section of chairs and behind the second section of chairs. Get up, grab one, go back to your seat. It won't bother me. It won't bother anybody else. And if you don't have a Bible, and when you grab one of those, you can keep it. It is our gift to you. We want you to have it uh, because we're going to spend time in it this morning. And we're going to be back in Acts chapter 11. Um, We need to remind ourselves not only of who wrote this book and why he did it, but of his ultimate purpose. It wasn't just to create an account of the life and work of Jesus on earth, but the book of Acts in particular was written as a follow-up to his gospel to remind the church and to encourage the church of what Jesus continues to do now, even at the right hand of God the Father, risen from the dead to accomplish his purpose of redemption through his people who are empowered by his spirit. That's the purpose of the book of Acts. And Luke has been doing a fantastic job of taking us from the time when Jesus called his people together and sent them out on his mission to step by step how he continues to fulfill his promises through them. And we find ourselves at, a, at an interesting chapter and an interesting turning point in Acts in chapter 11. And we're going to start reading in verse 19. And for those of you who are guests with us, I tend to read and then talk and read and then talk. So I will read a few verses, and then I will talk about them, and then we'll go back to them as well. Uh, Before we do that, let me pray for us um, as we begin. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together as your people. Um, Help us in the time that we have, Lord, uh, to posture our hearts correctly, or to find ourselves in a humility as we approach your word, and to find ourselves in a sense of surrender as we approach your word. Lord, we ask, Lord, by your spirit that your word do only what it can do, that it change hearts, that it awaken passions, that it breathes new life, that it opens blind eyes to see your glory and your beauty in the face of your son, Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you do that through very weak and very human words that I have to speak this morning, that we do it through your spirit-empowered word. We ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus, that you would be exalted and you would be glorified. Amen. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So what's happening here? Let's explain a little bit of what's going on so we can make sense of what we're going to read going forward. Luke is now connecting us back to something that happened earlier in his narrative in Acts chapter 7. If you remember, Stephen was brought before the council leaders in Jerusalem to give a defense for the message that he was speaking to all the people in the temple and all the Jews in Jerusalem. And upon giving his explanation of the gospel and how all that they, the Jews had hoped for found its fulfillment in this man Jesus, the temple leaders and the council became irate and gnashed their teeth and They stoned Stephen. They murdered Stephen for his witness of the gospel. And Luke records that it was on the martyrdom of Stephen, on the death of Stephen, that a great persecution arose, not just on the leaders of this new group of believers, but on the church itself. And all of the believers that were in Jerusalem at the time had to scatter to nearby cities. And Luke, like a good filmmaker, told that story, then jumped over to show us something else that was going on. And now he's actually returning back to what happened to some of those believers as they were scattered. And so some of them traveled from Jerusalem as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And Antioch is the place where Luke is going to zero down his focus. And from this point in Antioch, as we're going to learn about the establishment of this new church in Antioch, the focus of God's activity is actually going to begin to shift in the book of Acts. So far, all the focus has been on what God has been doing in his people in Jerusalem. 
But remember, the promise was for his people to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And what Luke has shown us so far is how God has fulfilled that promise in Jerusalem. And we've seen the gospel spread through his people to Judea. We've seen the gospel poured out on believers in Samaria. And now we're going to see how God plants his church and continues his mission in Antioch so that the ends of the earth can be reached. And Antioch is an important place to actually understand God's strategy for doing this. You know, in the time, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman civilization, right behind Rome and Alexandria. Archaeologists and historians uh, on record say that Antioch around this time was probably as big as 500,000 people. It was about 13 to 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean coast, right on the banks of a prominent river. So it was an important trade city. It was a busy city. It was a big city. It was a diverse city because of the trade routes and being part of the Roman Empire. There were people from all tribes, tongues, and nations in Antioch. And in Antioch, where money flowed and ideas flowed and people flowed in and out, there was the center of the largest cult worship of Daphne. If you've ever studied the Roman history and mythology of Daphne, one of the strongest of the sensual religions and acts of worship in the Roman Empire. The cult of Daphne, the temple of Daphne, majored on temple prostitution. So you've got this big, diverse city that would get all kinds of wild with all kinds of money and all kinds of access to influences and resources. And it's in this place that God begins to plant his church by using his people to see his mission contend to the ends of the earth. So some believers travel as far as Antioch, and when they get there, what we're going to see in the next little bit is how God plants his church, how God grows his church, how God strengthens his church, and from this week forward, we're going to see how God actually sends his church. Is that fair enough? Is that good? I give you a Ray-worthy outline? Let's keep going. Verse 20, or 19. Those that were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. That's fair enough to understand, isn't it? I mean, these were right here most likely former Jewish believers. So they would go to the place where people who had the most in common with them would be, where people who were actually expecting the anticipated Messiah, where the the message that they were going to proclaim and the hope that they were going to share would be most received with people who were looking for it. So don't knock them for this when you read it. Don't think that these brothers and sisters who went right here were closed-minded when they went into these areas and only spoke to the Jews. It was just a natural crowd. The Jewish people were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Redeemer to come. So these people who were scattered went to them to proclaim to them the coming of this Messiah. That's what they were doing, but Luke wants to record something else that was going on here in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. These were Greek-speaking Jews who who most likely had a a Greek background and and came from a culture that understood the Greek culture. Upon coming to Antioch, they spoke to Hellenists. That's Luke's way of saying Greek-speaking Gentiles. And they came to them and didn't just speak, but they preached the Lord Jesus. And here's the first thing we've got to see when it comes to God planting a church. God always plants his church with the gospel. God always and only plants his church with the word about his son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if they're speaking to the Jews or if they're speaking to the Gentiles. God always plants his church, builds his church, starts his church upon the word spoken about his son, Jesus. And so these men were scattered, these people were scattered, these families were scattered, and they found themselves in places all around and up and down the coast. And the word that they carried and the message they told was the message of hope and redemption and restoration that was to be found in one man only. God always plants his church with his word about his son. And it's important for us to recognize this because we can get crowds really easy. We talk about being a church that wants to plant churches. And and for those of of you who are guests this morning, we're actually a church plant. In May, we will celebrate three years of being in this room, of having a, a gathered corporate service together on Sundays. Three years. We're a church plant. We're new by all intensive purposes. And it's important that we understand how God plants his church Because it's not difficult to fill up a room with people. It's not difficult to gather a crowd. All you need is something, a message that people want to hear. All you need is entertainment that people want to see. All you need is a place to actually get people together. That's all you need to get a crowd, but that doesn't make it a church. It doesn't make it a church. When God plants his church, he plants his church one way 
on one message for one purpose. I'm from Tennessee and they've got a saying for this kind of thing. They say, just because I stick my boots in the oven doesn't mean it's going to come out biscuits. (laughs) And you can get a crowd in a lot of ways. I mean, you can meet in homes, you can meet in schools, you can get a big fancy church building with a steeple on it. It doesn't really matter. God plants his church one way and with one thing, and that's always the word about his son. And so for some of you who who are going and trying to see, is this the place that God would call us to be? I'm looking around, I'm going from church to church to church. Let me just help you figure out what you need to understand to find the place that God would call you to be. Are you ready? When you go to a church and you meet with people and they say they're a church, you need to investigate the message that they place their hope and they place their faith in. Their message in some way has got to be communicated to you in however they would say it, whether they gather around a table or whether someone stands up on a big wooden block, that your sin naturally separates you from God, creator of all things, and from man, from other men and women on this earth. Your sin is the problem that we have to deal with between your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. It's not education. It's not politics. It's not really even culture and ethnicity and economics. It's sin. That is the problem. And the problem that has to be overcome is not how you fix that sin problem and how you restore your relationship with God, but it's how does God actually redeem and reconcile himself to people who continue to belittle him, to people who continue to rebel against him, to people who continue to take him for granted. How does God in his justice and in his holiness and in his righteousness redeem himself to sinful human beings who constantly spurn his love? How does he do that without belittling his love and his mercy and his just, all the attributes of God. And so the message that you've got to be looking for is the one that declares that the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to reconcile sinful human beings to God without compromising the justice and the holiness of God. And the way that he did that was through his son, Jesus. You've got to look for this message that the biggest problem faced with our sin is how God is going to reconcile himself to us without belittling any of his attributes. And he did that by sending his only son, Jesus, to live the life that you and I were created to live. The one that God intended for us to live from the very beginning. He came and he lived that life day in and day out on this earth, a life of perfect worship before God, of satisfaction in God, of temptation and trial and suffering and pain in a fallen earth, but never responding to it sinfully. He lived the way you and I were supposed to live. And then he laid his life down sacrificially in your place for your sin because of the life you choose to live instead of the one you were created to live. He did that willingly. And on the cross, Jesus Christ exhausted the wrath of God in your place for your sin to uphold the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God without ever compromising his love and his mercy. He did that for you in your place. You've got to look for this message. And if that wasn't enough, God looked at his son and he looked at his sacrifice in his life and in his death in our place and he raised him from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death, conquering all in our place so that those who would put their trust and their hope in this man, Jesus, could be forgiven, restored, redeemed, reconciled, cleansed, and made right before God. That is the message that God plants his church with. For those of you looking for a place to call home, look for that. You can be all kinds of crowds and all kinds of shows, big, little, loud, soft, historic, not historic, liturgical, not liturgical, whatever. If it doesn't have this and wasn't started with this and isn't continuing with this, it's not a church. Okay? If this isn't the hope, if this isn't the confidence, if this isn't the assurance, then it's not a church. They can call themselves a church, but it's not a church. Make sense? All right, God always plants his church with his word about his son. Second thing we see in this first few verses is that God uses everyday people living everyday life with gospel intentionality to plant his churches. And who went along the way, scattered from Jerusalem, Proclaiming this word from town to town to town and ultimately in Antioch. Who was it? You tell me their name. You can't. Because the Bible doesn't record it. 
There was no super apostle, super preacher, super bishop, super pastor. There was no superman that went town to town. It was everyday people living everyday life with gospel intentionality who went about gossiping the good news of Jesus Christ to every place they went and person they met. And as they would land in a place like Antioch, fleeing for their life, leaving everything that they had held dear materially and in their home behind them because of persecution, they would find themselves in these towns, loving one another, speaking to one another, encouraging one another, and people would look at them and figure out, what, who are these people? I mean, these are strange people. Well, why do you live the way you do? Why do you act the way you do? Why do you care for people the way you do? Then on the tip of their tongue was the good news of how God had cared for them. The good news of the one who came in their place and died in their place for their sin. The good news of the one who had instilled courage and confidence and hope and assurance in them. It was everyday people living everyday life with gospel intentionality, that's all. That's God's intention for his church. He didn't take super people, super Christians who would jump through all the hoops, who could do the dog and pony show on Sunday mornings. It was everyday people who lived everyday life with gospel intentionality that God used to plant his church. Second thing you see in here, I hope you do. Hopefully I can help clarify it for you. This is Ray talked about last week. God does not let the prejudices of people determine the makeup of his church. God is no respecter of your prejudice. Antioch is the first church established outside of Jerusalem and it's the first church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. This was an unbelievably cosmopolitan and diverse city. And these everyday believers living everyday life with gospel intentionality crossed any number of economic and social, physical and geographical barriers to see the gospel continue to spread where places where it had never been talked before, where it had never been spoken before, where it had never been heard by people before. Everyday people living everyday life with the gospel intentionality, crossing any number of social, geographic, economic, and physical barriers to see people reconciled to Jesus. The message of the book of Acts we've been continuing week in and week out is that the gospel is bigger than any barrier that a society or a people or a person can put up in its place. There is nothing that can stop the forward movement of the gospel. There is nothing that the gospel cannot overcome. There is no situation the gospel cannot reconcile. There is no sin the gospel cannot cover. And there is no shame the gospel cannot cleanse. There is no barrier that can actually stop the gospel. And there is no prejudice that God will respect when it comes to the makeup of his church. That's what we see beginning to happen here in Antioch. And when we talk about this, I, I felt... You know, I feel relatively necessary. That it's necessary that I have to say it. That when we talk about the makeup of God's church, especially here at Redemption Hill, and you see me, you see Chris, you see Raymond, you see us get up here, this isn't an idea that young idealistic men who wear hoodies with suit jackets and red tennis shoes, and this isn't an idea that we've come up with to say, wouldn't it be novel in a city like Richmond? with the scars and the stains historically and culturally that Richmond has, wouldn't it be novel for a black guy and a white guy to get up here and talk about being the church? That might be novel. It wasn't our plan. This this isn't our idea. It's not a novelty that we came up with and thought, you know what, we can get a crowd. And people are going to see, what kind of music are we going to sing? Is Ray going to pick the music or is Robert going to pick the music? What are we going to wear? Who's wearing what suit? It's not a novelty. It's God's plan. It's not my plan, it's not Ray's plan, it's not Chris's plan, it's, it's God's plan. It's a response, a fruitful response, a, a godly response to the work of the gospel in the lives of men and women. In fact, I expect when I pray, when I, when I pray for Redemption Hill, and I, I think about Redemption Hill next week and next year and, and 10 years down the road, I, I fully expect and pray to see indie scene rockers praying with country club golfers and Windsor Park residents playing with, praying with people from Highland Park. and It's just the nature of the church. It's just what happens when the gospel takes root and the gospel begins to grow. It's just what happens when people begin to mature, not in a sense of being able to do particular things for God, but are beginning to mature in their understanding of what God has already done in them and how he continues to define them and how that continues to motivate and compel and, and push people forward to Please hear me when I say this and when, when, when Ray's here preaching. Diversity is not the point. I want you to get that. As beautiful a thing as it is, 
Diversity is not the point. It's just the natural fruit of what only the gospel can do. We can't produce real diversity. We can't. We can play different kinds of music and different kinds of buildings, and we might be able to get a diverse crowd, but there's no real unity found in that diversity. It's not. If you don't believe me, we'll just turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll get all kinds of diverse people together and see what kind of unity there was there. Only the gospel can produce the kind of unity in the midst of such diversity that you see happening right here in Antioch. This is how God builds his church. And as we do that with that little sidebar, as we do that, the gospel should compel us, Redemption Hill, to be a people who see barriers, be they social, economic, geographical, like Rick and Nancy going into the prisons. All kinds of barriers they've got to cross to get in there. We've got to be a people who, because of the gospel, don't see barriers as barriers, but see them as opportunities for the gospel to go forward. We've got to look at the different things we face in the city, the things we've got to own up to, the, the, the fruit that has been birthed because of the things that have happened, the places that we're called to go, even the geography we have to cross, not as barriers to the gospel, but as opportunities for the gospel, as opportunities to see God's church planted as his word goes forward through his people, empowered by his spirit, that his name and his glory might be made known in this city above all other things that people might notice and look at. We've got to be a people who see barriers as opportunity. So when God's word <clears throat> about God's son, <clears throat> excuse me, is being treasured and gossiped by God's people, look at what verse 21 says. The hand of the Lord will be with them, and a great number who believe will turn to the Lord. When that's a reality, when God's people treasure God's word about God's son and live their everyday life with that type of gospel intentionality, what we can expect and what we can pray for is that the hand of the Lord will be on it. And that a great number of people will come to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's our evangelism strategy. You, increasingly learning to treasure the riches of the gospel. You learning to gossip the gospel. You loving the gospel, treasuring the gospel, being encouraged by the gospel, trusting the gospel so deeply that it's on the tip of your tongue. You, that, that's the evangelism strategy, the gospel. God plants his church with his gospel because it's not hard to get a crowd. But only God can make a people. And that's what we need to be praying for. So, people start getting saved in Antioch of all places. This place known for all kinds of things, but not a life that would reflect a glory to God. Certainly not holiness. The church in Jerusalem hears about this. Remember last week when Ray was talking, we already got the first real significant turn in, in the gospel going forward to the Gentiles. And, and now we hear this city, Antioch, Las Vegas. It's got a revival breaking out. People in Vegas are getting saved in droves. So the church in Nashville or Jerusalem has to send somebody out to check on it. You've got to make sure this is going right. Well, what's happening here? So they send Barnabas. And we've learned about Barnabas before. If you remember, Barnabas was the one who was marked as full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Luke will remind us here. But he sold his properties for the poor so that their needs could be met. And when Paul comes back to Jerusalem after he gets saved, it's Barnabas that runs interference for him with the other apostles and disciples. It's Barnabas that brokers that relationship there. And so now when the church needs to go check out something that's popping up in Antioch, they're going to send Barnabas. And when Barnabas goes to Antioch, what does he see? This is a crazy city. This is Ve- think, think Vegas. This is Vegas with money. He gets there. People are getting saved. What does he see? Is it all nice and pristine and neat? Systems and structures. They built a church building. They got leadership development. They got Wednesday night classes. They got suppers on Sunday night. Everything's nice and ordered and tidy, men's ministries, women's ministry, kids' ministry, family ministry, golf ministry, whatever it might be. Barnabas gets to Antioch. It's a mess. It's a mess. It wasn't ordered. Just weeks or, or months ago, <clears throat> we don't know how long it took them to get there. These were people who were buck wild. And they got saved. And you've got to know through your own life whether you forget it or not transformation into the likeness of image of Christ, it takes a lifetime. And that's the beauty of what the theologians call progressive sanctification. 
I mean, if this was the best that I get, I'm really sad. I know how sinful I am. And I've been at this thing for a while. These people are brand new. The potential landmines in their world have not been uprooted yet. They've heard a message and they've turned and they've placed their faith in this man, Jesus. And now they've got to figure out what that means for their everyday life. So Barnabas gets there and he takes a look around and this place is a mess. But here's what I want you to note. You've got to note something about this man, Barnabas, and, and what happens when he gets there. Verse 23 says, when he came and he saw what? The mess, the problems, the lack of programs, the type of music they played, the place they met. Now when Barnabas got there, what he saw was the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. You see, what he saw instead of a mess, he didn't dismiss the mess. I mean, Barnabas wasn't blind. I mean, Barnabas understood what was going on here, but listen to what was going on in his heart. When he approached this church and he approached the chaos of what was going on, what he saw was God's grace at work in the lives of these men and women and these families. What Barnabas saw wasn't a barrier to a good witness to a people. He saw an opportunity for the gospel to continue to go forward. What Barnabas saw was the grace of God at work in the lives of very sinful men and women. And we've got to take note of this because let me just ask you the question. Are you a person that would be characterized by carefully looking for the grace of God at work in other people's lives? Or are you a person who would be characterized as one who sees the problems or the mess in the lives of other people? And if you don't know, I would encourage you to ask your spouse if you're married. If your kids are old enough, ask them. If you're not married, ask your roommate. Ask somebody you do life with how you're characterized. You see, God's grace doesn't perfect immediately. It's not perfection in a moment. It's maturity over a lifetime and the potential ways that you can implode. They don't go away at the moment you can believe. What I want you to understand, just for those who want to dismiss this idea, I feel compelled here. We're not talking about living as a people with some kind of Pollyanna rose-colored glasses about the world. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard, you are going to have pain. You are going to suffer. God does not promise a suffering-free health, wealth, and prosperity life on this earth until his son Jesus returns. He doesn't. Not for anybody. You're going to hurt. Barnabas isn't ignoring the mess and the reality of what's going on in Antioch. What he is majoring on is what God is already doing at work in the lives of these people. And we must be a people who can get to the place where we can begin to major on what God is doing in the lives of his people and not what still needs to happen. We've got to get to this place. He saw God's grace in them and then he encouraged them. He exhorted them. That's what this word means. It means encouragement. He took, in courage, in courage, put courage in. He deposited courage in the hearts and lives of these men and women. And let me just ask, and, and I'll tell you the answer so you don't have to get confused. But what do you think he encouraged them with? I mean, did he come down and see what was going on and encourage them with just what a great decision they made? I mean, now, now look at yourselves and compare to those foolish people over there, running to that temple over there. You guys are much better than those people. You made such a good decision with your life. Barnabas didn't encourage these people with how great they were. Barnabas encouraged these people with how great Jesus is and has been for them. You see, God plants his church with the message about his son and God continues to grow and strengthen his church with the message about his son. Barnabas came and didn't say, okay, you heard the gospel and now you believed. Let me get you all ordered. Let's get some classes in place. Okay, you got Jesus. Now you gotta get over here and get this thing. One of the most neglected understandings of the growth and strengthening of the church, I would have to say historically, but certainly today. 
Barnabas didn't come and say, okay, you've got the gospel, now let's get on to everything else. Barnabas came, and in the midst of the mess, he saw God's grace, and he encouraged them. He helped them to understand how the riches of the gospel that they had heard and began to believe now affected the realities of their everyday life. He simply encouraged them in what they had already believed. This is unbelievable. Barnabas simply came and said, okay, you've got the gospel. Now let me help you see how that changes, how you understand who you are and how you understand your family and how you understand these things. It's the gospel. He simply helped them to believe in a more sincere and deeper way what they already knew. It's only the gospel that can begin to encourage you this way, that can deposit the kind of courage into your soul that you need to deal with with what we deal with on a day in and day out basis. It's only the gospel that can put that kind of steel in your spine. Barnabas came and he didn't take them somewhere else. He simply encouraged them in the gospel. And I'll ask you, we'll just do this. Where are some places that you can begin to recognize the grace of God at work in the lives of other people and be a person who would be characterized as encouraging, depositing courage in those that you see this at work in? How about here? I mean, what if here you became a man or a woman or we became a people who are characterized by those who at first glance, whose first response, whose first recognition of what was going on in here was God's grace at work in the lives of that person that irritates you. That person that continues to do the thing you don't want them to do. Whatever that sin is that you just can't stand and this person keeps doing it, drives you crazy. I mean, what if we became characterized as a people who didn't just simply recognized the mess and how far people need to go and therefore felt free to tell other people about how far they need to go. But we were people who were characterized by recognizing the grace of God at work in their life and encouraging that. We would quit. Mm. I might go somewhere I don't want to go with that. We would quit being a people who were characterized, let's say, by gossip by judgmentalism. Because what is in the forefront of our mind when it comes to what God is doing here is not how far this person needs to go or just how far or how much this person has let me down. But we'd be a people who would be characterized by recognizing the grace of God at work in the lives of other people and being a people who were content and driven to encourage what God was doing in other people's lives. You can do it here. You can do it with your pastors. I mean, what if your predominant characterization of your pastors wasn't how much we've disappointed you? Or how we could do certain things differently? Or how where you came from, they did this and we don't do this, but you could recognize God's grace at work in our lives and the way God is working in us and could encourage it. But you can start even closer to home. I mean, what if you just started this in the place where you live? Your married husbands, what if you became a person who wasn't so clear about all the things your wife needed to do to be the person you wanted her to be. And you were more clear about what God was already doing in her life that you could celebrate and encourage. Wives too. I mean, what if this was the predominant way your children would characterize your conversation with them? I mean, ask them. If your kids are old enough, and old enough, I mean like four or five. Ask them. Do you think daddy pays more attention to all the things you do wrong or does daddy tell you more things about what God's done for you and that he sees and is encouraged by in your life? Just start at home. This has been a huge thing for me in the last year. I came to the place where I realized that if you were to ask my family or ask people who knew me, I would no longer be categorized or or characterized by being a person who was an encourager or a a person who could recognize the grace of God at, at work in circumstances and situations in people's lives that I majored on problems. I was ready to see what needed to be fixed and try to fix it. So I just began to pray. Because I couldn't fix that. There were things that I could do and things and habits I could cultivate, but I needed God to change my heart. Because the thing that we need to realize is that this characterization of Barnabas, this encouragement, this ability to see the grace of God at work in difficult people and difficult circumstances, it's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of the Holy Spirit. This is a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, a lack of that in a people or person is a mark of what? Immaturity. Immaturity. 
If you would characterize yourself or be characterized by one who only recognizes problems or is judgmental or is self-righteous, it is a mark of immaturity. Praise God that he's put people in your life that can show you, that he's put the Holy Spirit in your heart to convict you. Now it's a matter of responding to it. And I began to pray, just asking God to continue to change my heart because I was beginning to be broken by just how judgmental and mean I was and how I always saw problems and majored on problems and this was going to destroy things in my home over the long term. It would destroy this church because we would never grow into maturity. So I began to pray. And then I began to take a little journal. I carry it with me every day. And I would write down places where I saw God's grace at work in different people. And then I said, once a week, I'm going to send an email or a letter to somebody that I've met this week somewhere in this church where I've seen some aspect of God's grace at work in their life. I'm going to send it to them. Because here's the thing, it's one thing to begin to be a person who can recognize it and, and that thing begin to change in your life and, and you can see that, that maturity come. It's another thing to actually say it. And I was really getting bad there. I was really good at recognizing all of a sudden where God was being gracious to me to the people that he's given me and where he was at work and building people's lives. I just couldn't say it. I was really good at telling you where you needed to go. Really good at waiting for the right opportunity to tell my wife where I was right and she was wrong. But I had a whole journal of places where I felt like God was at work in her life. I just never told her. I just never told her. And it's a mark of immaturity. So we need to be a people who are characterized by seeing the grace of God at work in people's lives and in particular circumstances and, and encouraging them in it, depositing courage. Not how great they are and what they're doing, but what God's doing. What I can see God continuing to do. How they can hold fast how their spine can be strengthened, how their soul can be strengthened by recognizing what God's doing in them that they probably can't see because they're more aware of their flaws because you've been good at pointing them out. Well, that wasn't Barnabas. That wasn't Barnabas. He began to encourage this church in what God has already done in their life. And I will say this as a commercial for, for our RH communities. This is one of the things that I am most delighted in when it comes to our communities that get together throughout the week is that we are working to cultivate relationships and environments where this very thing can happen. Where we can become a people who continually learn to speak the gospel and encourage, deposit courage in one another's lives as we help one another hold fast to the reality of who Jesus is for us and what he's done for us. And I would encourage you, if you haven't connected to one of those communities, to, to get some information about them after the service. Come to the Meet Redemption Hill and get some information, but continue to try to find one of these communities where you can get to know people and be known by people where you can use what God has given you to deposit courage in other people and the same thing can be done in your life. Uh, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really excited about that, but that's my, that's my commercial. That, that'll be end. What happened when he did this? As Barnabas made it his business to encourage people in what God was already doing, what happened? What does the scripture say? A great many people were added to the Lord. You want to know our evangelism strategy? It's you treasuring the riches of the gospel day in and day out, repenting and believing. That's it. That's our evangelism strategy. We don't really have a program for it. I don't have a class that I can teach you for it. I can't show you how to go knock on a door and what to say. The evangelism strategy in Antioch is pretty much the same as the evangelism strategy here. Men and women trusting and treasuring the riches of the gospel in an increasing way day in and day out and living their life together with intentionality and the watching world having no answer for the way that they live and then asking, how in the world does that happen? And the gospel being so rich and so real and so passionate and precious to you, the only answer that you've got for them is this. The ministry of Barnabas' encouragement resulted in new people getting saved because the church was strengthened to live in the way that it had already begun. And as they lived in the way that they had already begun with the gospel intentionality, empowered by the Spirit, people began to watch and began to want to know what was going on, and they just told them. That's it. It's not complicated. It's you and I, day in and day out, treasuring and repenting. Treasuring and repenting. Repenting and believing. And learning to live together with intentionality. That's the evangelism strategy in Antioch. For the most part, that's our evangelism strategy here. We'll keep going and then we'll wrap it up. Verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So some of you are going to ask questions about that whole ministry strategy, evangelism strategy. That's all we're going to do. Well, 
want you to look at this verse. That so is really important. Really important, you know, skip words in the Bible. So Barnabas came and he saw the grace of God at work and he encouraged the church. He encouraged the people. And you can bet money because of Barnabas' ministry to them, they began to be a people who encouraged one another. And as they did that, people began to get saved. So, because of what Barnabas did in their lives, and they began to do in each other's lives, and people began getting saved, so Barnabas looked around and said, this is beyond me. Now, I can't handle this in and of myself. And now, more people are coming. And he looked around and he called his buddy Paul, Saul, who we learned earlier, because he recognized in Saul a gifting and a calling that had come from God. He knew that God had told Saul that he was going to be God's man to take the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles and before kings. And the humility in this man Barnabas to recognize what God was doing and say, you know what? At some point, the work here is going to eclipse me. We're going to need the ministry of this man, Saul. And he goes and gets Saul, and Saul comes with him to Antioch, and for a year they taught the people. So they encouraged the people in what they had already believed about Jesus, and then they spent time teaching people, teaching them what that gospel meant for the way that they lived. They taught them more about who this God was that they had so offended, who then reconciled them to himself through his son. They taught them more about who God is and who Jesus is and what difference that makes in the way they understand things. A teaching ministry grew up in this church of Antioch to continue and to encourage people in what they have known. And That's kind of a place where we are right now. Whereas we have come to hear the message of the gospel and learn to treasure the gospel and more people are being added and more people are learning to be encouraged. There's a place and a time for then learning in a greater detail and a greater measure just how that message then connects to the way that we live. And we're gonna spend time in this next couple of years putting some focused energy on doing the very thing that Barnabas began to do when he called Paul. So we're we're gonna need some help because we're going to teach these people in a greater way just what it is they believe and how it changes the way that they live their life. So there's a place and there's a a time for this very thing. And we're getting to that, but what I want you to see even bigger than that as we come to the end is that what God is doing in planting his church and continuing his mission and fulfilling his promise, it's going to cost us. Sometimes it's kind of hard to see right here, but The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas never went back. Barnabas was a stalwart in the church in Jerusalem. I mean, when they had a problem, it was Barnabas that ran interference. When something needed to be checked out, it was Barnabas that they sent. Barnabas was a stalwart and a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. And they sent him to check out Antioch and he never came back. The mission is going to cost us. As we continue to grow and as we continue to immerse ourselves in the gospel and we continue to pray that God would make us a church like Antioch that was planted on the gospel, strengthened by the gospel, and be a church that continues to plant churches with the message of the gospel, it's going to cost us. Some of the people you love are going to be sent out of here to go and to continue to do what God has already begun in this place. Some of the best, some of the brightest, some of the ones you love the dearest for the sake of God's purpose to continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth where his name has not been named and people have not had the opportunity to believe in him and turn to his grace, it's going to cost people. It's going to cost resources. It's going to cost, but the sacrifice, the sacrifice was worth it. And the sacrifice of the Jerusalem church for Antioch, and here at the end, the sacrifice of the Antioch church for Jerusalem. Let's be like Barnabas is an evidence of God's grace at work in their life and it will be an evidence of God's grace at work in our life as we're willing to do this very same thing and releasing the resources that God has blessed us with in people, in money, in material, in equipment. Let's look at how this, look at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all of the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So this is historical record, he's noting. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. What's in Judea? The church in Jerusalem. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So now this church in Antioch, growing in their understanding of the gospel, treasuring it more deeply, 
holding it more passionately, speaking it with more conviction, numbers being added, continually being encouraged, they hear that the church in Jerusalem who sent them Barnabas, that a famine's coming. Famine, no matter what day it is, 2011 or back then, is a bad thing. And those are people that they love now. Have they ever even met them? No. Are they like them ethnically or economically? No. The one thing that they need is the one thing they have in common, and that's the person and work of Jesus. And so what do they do? Well, they don't have a person they can send. No one's been raised up there quite yet that's like Barnabas or Saul. And notice they don't send Barnabas back. Because that wouldn't fix the problem. What they do is they gather resources. That they had. Antioch was an affluent place. They gathered their resources. They sacrificed their stuff, their money. They gave it to Barnabas and Saul. And they said, go on back and take it. Take it to our family in Jerusalem. Take it to the church in Judea. Famine's coming and we want to help. Their sacrifice for the church in Jerusalem, the church in Judea, was evidence of God's grace at work. The very grace that Barnabas recognized and continued to encourage and continued to strengthen. And there's going to be opportunities that we have as a church to send people out, to send Barnabases out. There's going to be opportunities that we have to go and establish new works of the gospel in places where the gospel hasn't been named or the gospel hasn't been declared. Where there is no church that preaches the gospel, no people that gather around the gospel, no people that consistently come together to encourage each other in the gospel. And we're going to send people that you love out to do that. We're going to have opportunities to do that, but there's going to be other opportunities where the gospel's already at work where God is using other brothers and sisters to do a great thing and we're going to have a chance like the church in Judea and Jerusalem and like the church in Antioch to gather the resources that we have and and just join in in what God's doing. When God begins to do something somewhere else and a great many are being added, we don't look at it and go, ah, why not here? You know what? Maybe if I send Ray, we can convince him to call it a Redemption Hill Church in Fredericksburg. We can tie it back to our church here and wow, we've just doubled The point is not the church in Antioch's kingdom, the church in Jerusalem's kingdom. The point's not the kingdom of Redemption Hill. The point is men and women and boys and girls by faith placing their hope and trust in all they are in the grace of Jesus and God's kingdom being established in places where it has not been named. For that, we'll sacrifice whatever we've got. And as long as they preach the gospel, plant it on the gospel, encourage people in the gospel, teach people the gospel, I I don't care what you call it. Pick a name. Call it first, second, or third, whatever. I, I don't care. I'll do what we can to see it continue, to see it strengthened, to see it established, and to see the work of God move forward. And one last piece of fruit I want you to see. And all of that, the gospel planting, the gospel growing, the gospel strengthening, there's some unique fruit in Antioch, and it's back there in verse 26. As these people began to believe the gospel and live their everyday life with gospel intentionality and encourage one another in the gospel, and the city of Antioch began to look around and, you know, a place that archaeologists say was divided by walls where all the different ethnicities would build walls to keep other people out of their part of town and everybody was divided. All of a sudden, this group of people from all different types of people were trying to figure out how to get around those walls and, and do life together and live together and support one another and encourage one another and sacrifice for one another. And the city couldn't figure out what was going on. So the city looked at these people and gave them a name. I don't know if you guys knew this. The city of Antioch, Vegas, looked at these people and gave them a name. And it was a nice name. Contrary to the names Richmond may give us. It was a nice name. They called them what? Christians. Church didn't come up with that. The church didn't come up with the name Christians. The city looked at these people and said, these these are ones of Christ. That's what Christian means. One of Christ's. Something about the way they lived and the way they served and the way they loved and the way they believed and the way they suffered and the way they sacrificed did something to this city where they looked at them and said, whatever they are, they're one of Christ's. And let me, let me end by, by asking us this. What if we, maybe it can be an experiment, what if we no longer call ourselves Christians? 
You see, the church in, in Antioch and the church in the first century, they didn't call themselves Christian. They called each other saints. They called each other brother. They called each other disciples. They called each other followers. They called each other believers. They didn't call each other Christians. The city gave them that name. What would it actually take? Just think about this. What would it actually take for the city to look at you and I, to look at us in the way that we live with each other, the type of people that we live together with, the way we serve one another, the way we love one another, the way we encourage one another, the way we suffer with one another, the way we rejoice with one another, to look at us and go, mm, nah. they're of Christ. And we let them call us Christians. What would it take? Well, from what we saw here, it'll take us being a people who are planted by the gospel, a people who continue to trust in the gospel, a people who are dedicated to encourage one another with the gospel, and a people who allow that gospel to drive our everyday life with a measure of intentionality to see that gospel continue to produce fruit in the lives of the people in our world, in the lives of the people in this church, in the lives of the people that God would bring into our life. That's what it would take. And I want to pray for us now as we end that, that God would make us a people that would reflect that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word most specifically about your son, Jesus. God, may you make us a people who are increasingly characterized by treasuring the riches of the gospel. May it be on the tip of our tongue and the source of our joy, the source of our contentment, the source of our courage. May it be the word that we speak to each other about each other and about the things that we face. May it bear fruit in our lives in concrete ways that we can look at and point at. Lord, let the gospel let the gospel grip us so much that we can look at what you're doing in our lives and in this city and in the world and say that it's worth sacrificing our life for. It's worth living for. It's worth committing ourselves to to see the gospel continue to go forward. Let that be the way this church is characterized. We can't do it. We need your spirit to do that work in us. And I ask God that you continue to be gracious to us. Let your spirit will continue to work in our lives. That we would be a people that would make much of you. We ask this, Lord, for your name to be exalted. Amen.